You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Randy Winston. Among other things, Randy is an editor, writer, speaker, and the writing programs manager at the Center for Fiction. Born and raised in Atlanta, Randy's parents had Brooklyn and Bermudan roots. And although his mom's family owned a Bed-Stuy brownstone and had some level of economic security, financial literacy didn't necessarily trickle down. So Randy grew up relatively working class. There wasn't disposable income for video games or extravagant vacations, but he always had a pen and paper and had his natural knack for writing to keep himself entertained. In high school, Randy was a member of the track team and was also in the gifted and talented program with his twin sister. But when the academic pressure became too much, they decided to drop out without consulting their parents. And instead of going straight to a four-year college, Randy opted to attend Wallace State Community College in Alabama, the number one junior college track program in the country. There, he built community with his teammates and was doing well academically. He was slated to return for his second year as captain of the track team. But on the way back to school to sign all the paperwork for the following semester, he decided he was not returning. And instead, Randy took a job as a groundskeeper at an apartment complex where he worked for the next four years. But during that time, he and a friend found a passion project. They turned an old chicken coop into a warehouse where they held parties and poetry slams. This experience reignited Randy's interest in writing, but it wasn't yet a career focus. He decided to return to school for architecture, but eventually he would pivot again and end up right where he belonged. So how does one go from aspiring to be an architect to building an impressive academic and professional career in the field of creative writing? I'll let Randy tell you. Please enjoy. Randy, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. You know, this is always a different experience for me when I'm talking to someone who like does this. Right. <laughs> in the space, uh, I feel a different kind of pressure uh, when I'm talking to someone who knows how to ask questions and get information out of people as well. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fun both ways. I feel like um, now all of a sudden now I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, I always tell people I usually say this before we start recording. I'm sure I've said it on a recording before, but I always tell people it's just like brunch, like a conversation mm. over brunch. It just so happens to be recorded, right? And, and we're not live. So if something goes off the rails, that's what post-production is for. <laughs> so let's get into it. Yeah. Who is Randy Winston? I, um, I, would, I would say curious. Uh, someone who's very curious and takes more risk than he used to, for sure, as, I, as I've gotten older. Um, but yeah, I, I would probably say that's probably the most accurate at the moment. It changes, you know, mm-hmm. it changes. So tell me about your upbringing and where that curiosity may have been born. Uh, I was, um, so I was born and raised in Southwest Atlanta. 
Um, it's funny. I was I'm thinking about Homegirl back home, the rapper who who did this whole thing about what, what parts of Atlanta. You were actually uh, <laughs> not from Atlanta, yeah. It, it is, you know, it's 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 important for me to note that I was born at Peabody Hospital downtown, and then uh, growing up, my first half. The first half of my youth, I went to Atlanta Public School, Continental Colony. So for anybody that's uh, fact-checking here, <laughs> uh, just let the record show. But um, yeah, I'm a twin. I have a twin sister. Um, and I am one of four kids. I had my I had both my parents um, throughout my youth, which is something that a lot of my friends did not have. Um, so I, that's something I don't take for granted, or I, I, at least I try to remind myself of that, um, pretty often. And they're still here. Um, my mom's from Brooklyn. My dad's from Bermuda. Mm. That's very weird. <laughs> you don't find that often, but yeah. So that's I, two different temperaments and personality types coming together. Oh yeah, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Indeed. So how was that for you having a two-parent home, but also culturally sort of melding these two worlds um, and them modeling this life of two probably very different people coming together and raising these kids in an environment where that may not have been the norm among some of your friends. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Um, so my mom, she grew up in Bed-Stuy and they had money. Mm. My my uh, my mom, my aunt, my and my grandparents on, on their side, they had a lot of money. And um, they had a, they lived in a brownstone. Brownstone was paid off. Uh, my mom traveled a lot, um, horseback riding, shopping in Manhattan, and all this stuff. Uh, like a completely different reality than what I had growing up. Uh, so by the time we came in, we you know we didn't have money like that. <laughs> uh, we we stayed in an apartment, and I think at one point we were able to get a house. It was like around ninety four. And I remember this because uh, my name, this is years later, but I found out through a credit report that my name was on the lease. Mm. Um, and I don't know how it got on there. I, I think it might've been an error. My, I'm a junior, so I'm named after my dad. But um, so yeah, it was like around 94 when we got a house. And for a while I thought, oh man, this is nice. Like, you know, that's an upgrade from having an apartment to having a house and, um you know, we had a backyard, front yard, uh, porch, back porch, front porch, driveway, all this stuff. And for a while, it, it really felt like, oh, man, um, I might be living like some of these other kids I know. And uh, yeah, that, that ain't the reality. That ain't what happened. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in hindsight, as an adult, I think we don't think about these things as kids, obviously. But when you hear these stories of families especially in Brooklyn, who had a brownstone, which we know now mm -hmm. is a wealth generator, considering yeah. how these these communities have been gentrified, unfortunately. But the value, the property value um, has gone up considerably. And there are many Black folks who have been able to create generational wealth mm -hmm. because of that and others who have unfortunate stories mm -hmm. of how it was not seized upon. But so now thinking about how your mom grew up versus, versus your experience, in your older years, have you thought or asked the question like, "What happened?" All the time. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's financial literacy. Uh, we, my mom just, my parents didn't know enough about how to generate wealth, and that's and that's no knock against them. I know some people might might hear that and think he's talking bad about his parents, but it's the truth. You know, it was always save your money, 
save your money, go to college, save your money. Like those were the two goals. The two goals were save your money, go to college. And of course now, uh, hindsight, saving your money don't get you anywhere. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say it doesn't get you anywhere, but saving your money does not, does not create wealth. Right. Um, and going to college doesn't guarantee you anything. And I'm, 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 I've seen that going to college means does not mean that you're guaranteed success and wealth in life. Um, but that's all my parents pumped into us. So that's all we knew. And, you know, along the way, I mean, we had a house, it was four kids. We had a house, we were doing good. And my dad couldn't keep a job. Uh, my mom was working a lot and the bills just started to pile up, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, we weren't getting the kind of money that she had when she was coming up that that uh pipeline wasn't still happening anymore. Uh, my my grandparents had passed away before I was I think before I was born or shortly after. And yeah, I, I mean yeah, it's a it's a tale of what to do and what not to do. Right. But, you know, despite maybe the financial difficulty was there because you had that save money and go to college uh mantra sort of drilled into you. I'm sure your parents are doing things to give you the best shot academically yeah oh yeah yeah academically absolutely um you know i my my mom was someone who would go to the school like if anything happened my mom was at the school my dad they they were like a team in a way where she would take care of the academic side of things and he would take care of the rec side of things so if i was playing basketball he was the one who took me to the games if i was running track he was usually the one that was at the track meets um he picked us up after school my mom was working a lot and he was too but her schedule was different because she was a manager at a department store so she would work double shifts sometimes and you know so he was the one that had to organize his schedule so that he could pick us up but yeah the academic part of it was very very strong especially for me me and my sister my twin because we were the first mm-hmm. and so like you know it was a lot of i didn't i didn't know how much pressure was on us i didn't realize how much pressure was on us because you're a kid you don't know any better but i did realize that there was a standard that had been set or a bar that we had to reach but i didn't know how much pressure was on me as the oldest I didn't realize that until a lot later. So going back to that time, you mentioned the athletic piece, but there is this focus of of academics. I definitely want to get to the pressure and how you came to that realization. Um, but in the academic space, did you realize early on, like, ooh, I, I enjoy the, the uh, arts. I enjoy writing those things. Did that revelation come early in your academic journey? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you real quickly. We because we didn't have like my parents weren't able to afford like video games and stuff like that. And so recreationally, like in my downtime, I would write a lot Uh, and I kept a journal. So when I went when I would go to school, like the writing portion of whatever we did was easy, whether it was arithmetic or it was English class, you know, like in the early days, we just writing sentences, all that stuff I found really interesting. But what I found more interesting was uh, drawing. And so I drew a lot. I had a lot of sketch pads growing up, like for, you know, some kids going to like Discovery Zone back. See, I'm telling my age now, going to Discovery Zone or stuff like that was fun. For me, it was my mom walking in the house and handing me a drawing pad. So mm-hmm. I would draw a lot. So, yeah, that's. And so in art class, I 
art class and I was a star. I, you know, I was really, really good in art. Um, whether it was drawing or building and stuff, I I was game. So you're developing this knack for art, uh, not necessarily into the same things that your peers might have been into. Did you have an early view or vision for what you wanted to be professionally? No, I, I mean, I uh, so at home, you know, I would build things. Um, and I was telling a good friend about this yesterday. I would build things. I would take Legos. I would take uh, plastic from around the house. Um, I would take cardboard boxes. I'd cut them up, whatever. And I would build stadiums. That was like the thing. That was my thing. And I, you know, I started asking questions like, who builds stadiums? Who does that? And everyone was like, architects do that. Maybe I want to be an architect. Um, and it was, you know, it was, these were things I just did. Um, it didn't take a lot of thinking. I just, I would do it. And I would spend all day long. That's all I would do all day. He's building a stadium. Leave him alone. That's what I would do. Um, and the drawing, you know, and I think a part of that, that drawing and like building stuff, it was partly an escape. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure, because you know, I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't escape with video games, and you know, I'd go outside sometimes and play. But the neighborhood we was in, we were in at the time, was very white, uh, which was weird because we didn't have a lot of money. But uh, the neighborhood we were in at the time was white, um, and over time, as I was getting older, like as I would turn eleven and twelve, it would it was turning black, and white folks were moving out. Um, they didn't, they didn't want to be there no more. Um, but yeah, that, I I think the profession like was slowly becoming architecture. Mm. Which, so I want to talk a little bit about being in this white neighborhood because I think it's a, it's an important thing to note. Mm-hmm. When sometimes people you know have parents who are all about education and you know all about giving their kids the best shot, you often hear people say exactly what you said. I didn't have the video games. I didn't have the money to do X, Y, and Z. And you realize in hindsight that like if my parents would have just lived in the hood. I probably would have had enough, you know, for those things, but they mm-hmm. traded, you know, the, the community, they traded those extra like ancillary, you know, fringe benefits of video games and toys for me to live in this community and, and go to a better school. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have that, that revelation as well? Um, partly. I mean, I was going to school with, with folks that were from the hood. So the, like my friends, and, you know, I'm not like beating my chest or anything, but like my friends were people that grew up in the hood um, and I like and vice versa. Like I had I had friends that grew up in the hood. I had friends that grew up in affluent neighborhoods. I was a guy that everyone liked. It wasn't like my goal to be liked by everybody. I was just someone that I didn't piss anybody off. I didn't bother anybody. So as a result, people just, you know, for lack of a better word, people with me. Um, and I, you know, I was just, I was just a good dude. I didn't, I didn't really cause trouble or nothing like that. And so I like, I would hang out after school or like on weekends or whatever. I would hang out with friends who didn't have what I had, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was always frustrated cause I'm like, well, you know, if they, if, if they don't have the type of living situation that I have, how come their parents can buy this for them, but my parents won't. And that always frustrated me. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it is what it is. I, I mean, in hindsight, people do what they can with what they have. Um, and they're doing the best that they can with what they know. Um, and so, you know, I, I think if it was up to my dad, we would we would probably have been living in the hood. Mm-hmm. But because my mom had that upbringing that she had, um, you know, 
she took us out of that early and into a house because uh, I was living in East Point when uh, in, in my early, early days. And then around, I think it was around nine, nine years old was when we moved to the house. So you mentioned this pressure you felt as, you know, you and your sister being on the older end, two older kids. Describe a little more about that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was mostly academics and mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of all of the siblings felt that. But it was it was like especially with us because, you know, on a roll, it was my mom. It was like, you know, are you doing your homework? What did the teacher say? Report cards. Report cards had to be turned in, all this stuff. And if you don't, if you weren't telling her, she'll go find out herself. She, the t- all of our teachers had license to beat us at the time. Oh gosh, <laughs> this is a different era for sure. This was a different era. My mom, hey, mom would give them a belt to do it. Uh, sometimes my mom would uh, give my brother a whooping when we got when we uh, dropped him off at school before he even went in the classroom. He he didn't do anything. And she he was like, why are you whipping me? And she was like, cause this is for later, because I know you're gonna do something. <laughs> but there was a lot of there was a lot of uh pressure for us academically. Um and and I think a lot of that was just me not knowing what not knowing agency mm-hmm. and not knowing what I like what I, what my limits were and what my power was as a kid as I was growing up. And so I just, as a result, I'm just like, I got to do whatever my mom tell me I got to do, like whatever, you know. And then over time, I started to realize like, oh, there's some flexibility here with with intention. There's some flexibility here. So, but yeah, early honor roll. It was mm-hmm. honor roll or bus. It couldn't be no C's. Yeah, well, no C's. So you you get to, to high school, you know, and start to think about college were you still at that point thinking out, you know, I, I'm assuming start to think about college giving your mom, but were you still on this journey of like, I want to be an architect? Uh, nah. And I'll tell you why. I took an engineering course with Mr. Edwards in 11th grade and he set me straight. It was it 11th grade or was it 10th grade? It was 10th grade. And he set me straight. Um, it was an engine. It was like the first engineering course that our school had offered. Like I, my, my school wasn't, my high school wasn't like this top private school thing. It was a, it was a public school and mm-hmm. we, everybody went there. Everybody went there. Um, and so you talking about everybody from Adam Jones, Pac-Man who went on to play in the NFL to like, um, shit. I mean, like the sports were everything. Sports mm-hmm. was, our, sports was our thing. We won basketball titles. A lot of our football players went to the NFL. So, you know, focusing on academics, there was a small population of people that were able to do that. And I got caught up in the sports part of it. And I was running track. So I, you know, I took that engineering course. I hated it. I bar- I think I barely s- skated by with a passing grade and it wasn't a B or a C. It was like one of those 69s that kind of get you through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to spend an extra week, like the first week of summer working with the professor to get it through. And I was just like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. So me and my twin sister together, we dropped out of the magnet program which is like this big honors program. And we didn't tell our mom we were doing it. We dropped out. We we hated it. We didn't like the pressure that it put on us. And that was like the first time that I I had made a decision without my mom like that, where I was just like, you know what? I'm doing this. I, I don't care what she say. We were stressed out. And, and I was I was depressed most of high school. And I think in large part because of the pressure academically to, you know, put up numbers just for the hell of it. 
as as far as I felt. And then college was starting to stress me out. Like the idea of going to college, mm-hmm. I hated standardized tests, you know, taking the SAT, all this stuff. And I'm a smart kid, like, you know, like I, you know, I would write five page papers the night before they were due and it's the best paper in class. I would do presentations, set them up the night before they were due and, and have the best presentation. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't some, I wasn't slumping or like, you know, doing bad. I just, I didn't like that, that academic pressure. I was like, what is this for? And I think a lot of that has to do with the friends I started making who, you know, whose parents gave them leeway to think without like being lorded over. And that kind of poured into my, my development as well. So I'm surprised that the school allowed you and your sister to drop out of the magnet program without any involvement from your parents but when did your mom find out oh she found she found out soon after and we just we both and i guess this was the luck of having a twin was like if if that's me by myself i don't know if i can do that but because it was two of us sharing that together you know we were able to talk to her about that together so she you know she she was a little disappointed but in the end she accepted it so you relinquished this pressure of putting up numbers on the board academically, you you are an athlete at a school where like sports were a huge focus. Did you have active engaged administrators, meaning counselors who were like, okay, Randy, you're a smart kid and you're an athlete. Here's a path you need to go on post-graduation. Oh man, these people are going to kill me for saying this. Um, we had counselors. We didn't have a lot of them. Uh, it wasn't, I, I had friends that went to Landmark. I had no friends. I had a friend that went to Landmark. It's a private school in um, South Atlanta, actually in Fairburn. And um, see that rap song still playing in my head. (laughs) And um, he, I saw the resources that they had. I saw those resources and I could not believe like the, the preparation that these high school students had to get ready for college. I could not believe it. And we just didn't, like our school didn't have that kind of manpower. And so you really had to be proactive as a student. Uh, You had to be proactive. And at the time, I just, I I was more concerned about sports. So I can't really, I can't blame the counselors as much. I mean, we didn't have the resources. We didn't have as as many resources as other schools. But, you know, if your parents knew about, okay, these scholarships, these people will fund these scholarships for black kids. And there's a scholarship for this. And there's, but my parents didn't know any of that. And so um, either I was going to the guidance counselor to get that information. And it's like one or two people lording over all these students. And so you really got to just be in there all the time. You, you know, and, and I know friends that had parents that just they understood how everything worked. And so they were able to help them. Boom, boom, boom. But again, I, I just I wasn't as proactive. I thought I could just get a scholarship and go to college running track or whatever. And, I, you know, I'm also fighting the whole I don't want to be in Atlanta anymore. I don't mm-hmm. want to be in Georgia, which is a running theme in my life. Um, so I tried to get, I was trying to get the hell up out of there. So where did you end up? Uh, I. <sighs> So I took the SAT. I wasn't impressed with it. It wasn't that good. Again, standardized test. <laughs> and um, I waited till the summer to apply to Georgia State. I did not want to go there, but I felt the pressure of having to go there. Um, I had also 
been recruited slash applied for McKendree College, which is like in Illinois. My best friend was going there for football. And so I thought maybe I'll just go to McKendree. And that's when I first uh, was introduced to student loans because the scholarship wasn't going to cover everything. Mm-hmm. So I would have to take out loans to cover the rest. And I was just like, man, this is crazy. But I, I knew in my mind, there was no other option. You had to go to college or else everyone would think you were a failure. Um, there there was no, oh, you can take this little bit of money you have and invest it in an ETF and, uh, you know, do a do a job working over here and take the money that you have and continue to invest because your parents are letting you stay at the house. And, you know, like I wasn't thinking like those things weren't available to me. That information wasn't available to me. Um, and so I, I, you know, go to trade school. I, I wasn't thinking about that. So I'm just thinking it's college or bus. So mm-hmm. I applied to uh, Wallace State Community College. And for anybody that knows what a community college is, it's basically, at least for athletes, it's where it's where folks go who have the talent to go to D1 school, but they don't have the grades. And so now I'm overqualified right. going to the school. Um, it's in Alabama. It's in Hansville, Alabama. It's a dry county. And, and whatever you think of Alabama, that's exactly what it is. It was very white. We were clearly a minority there. And you had, when you left campus... At least be in pairs. Um, seriously. Uh, I, yeah. So I want okay, to let's, stop. let's pause here because uh-huh. how does one end up in Alabama? Yeah. And end up in Alabama at a community college, given your natural academic ability, mm-hmm. your athletic talent. I could see if you said, you know, I went to a community college in, in Georgia, I was just trying to figure it out, or I wanted to get out of. Atlanta and the surrounding area. So I don't know. I went to Florida or, you know, I went north, but mm-hmm. Alabama, what mm-hmm. made you choose that? That's a good question. So my, I have a guy brother who went to uh, school there. He ran, he ran track there. And um, at Wallace state at the time that I went, which was in 2004, they had the number one track and field program in the country um, for junior college. And so like we had, On that team, I ran with guys from Florida. I ran with guys from Texas, uh, some guys like one or two guys from Georgia, a couple of guys from Mississippi. But like everybody was fast. And I mean fast. The only reason those guys were there was mainly because of academics. They were legit athletes. Um, They were fast as hell. So I'm coming in as this guy who's like, I only went there because my, it was just the last, it was a Hail Mary. My God brother said, I know the coach, just talk to him. You can be a walk on. It's a lot cheaper than other schools. And then, and then while you're there, you can, you know, like get your, you know, figure out what you want to do next, figure out where you want to go. And you'll probably, and he got recruited. So he was recruited by Ole Miss. So he ended up going to Ole Miss and uh, finishing out his college career there. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, I'll just go to this school away from home and I'll get recruited by a, a SEC school or like a Big 12 or whatever. And then I'll transfer there after my two years. So that's what I'm thinking. So I start an art major there so that I can continue my curiosity in the arts and and I can run track. And class was easy. Um, I was actually tutoring. or I, it was it's not officially tutoring, but I was definitely helping some of the some of my teammates with their writing. Um, and yeah, that um, 
That track and field was no joke. I was running with the best of the best. I was mm-hmm. getting my ass handed to me in practice. But it was great because uh, iron sharp, sharp as iron. So I, I had a, I was determined to get better mm-hmm. and I was running with them. And, you know, these are highly talented guys. And so as a result of me, the slow guy out there, forcing them to run harder at practice, they started to get better. And so everyone's just kind of like feeding off that energy of like, we just, this guy is coming to work every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was great. And, you know, I did that for a year and then dropped out of school. Okay. So you, you full of surprises. <laughs> so um, you did this for a year in this environment. That's really great from an athletic perspective and also easy ac- academically with the expectation that you have this model of someone else who's done it successfully and transferred to a, a four-year school and you're putting the work in as an athlete. So how did you end up dropping out after you? Um, I left for, for summer break and something told me that if I left, I wouldn't come back. I didn't know what it was. It wasn't, and it wasn't clear. It's just a feeling I had. Um, and so part of me wanted to stay and just mm-hmm. train my best friend uh, who had just been recruited by UGA, he was he was a second year student. We were next door neighbors. He was staying to train. And so a part of me was just like, man, I, sh- I should stay and train. But a part of me was just like, oh, I'll go home. So I went home for the summer. Uh, the last day I was there, a coach told me uh, he wanted me to be a captain when I came back. Again, I'm not the I'm not the fastest guy on the team. So that, sp- that spoke more to my character and my effort than it mm-hmm. did how fast I was because there were other guys on the team that were much faster than me, but they trusted me and he trusted me. And so I had this to look forward to when I'm coming back, I go home, I throw a birthday party for myself at my friend's house. Um, he had, he had a very nice house and they had a pool in the back and all this stuff. So I DJ a party there and it's like, it goes from one to two in the morning. There's a bunch of people there um, and that night and well into the next morning, me and like a couple of friends are sitting around hanging out and we were like, man, what if we like did this to make money? What if we just like DJed and hold like MC parties to make money? I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. So like my, me and my curiosity, I, I come up with this like terrible business plan, like start making portfolios and like coming up with what it would look like. I did it like in 24 hours. And um, I presented to my my three friends. And I'm like, what do you guys think? And everyone's like, I mean, let's do it for the summer. Let's make some money. So we DJ some parties, um, like little house parties and stuff. And by the end of the summer, and this is like, I, I guess I got to give you context. This is at around 2005. Mm-hmm. This is like the Kanye era. This is when like, this is when everyone loves Kanye. This is like around... Uh, college dropout and then late registration. And so I embodied a lot of what I saw in him because I'm like, man, this is this guy who's not like a gangster thug. And, you know, he's being honest about that. And uh, he's very, he's more on the like studious, nerdy side. And I, I, I was just drawn to that. And of course, his tenacity and like energy and all of that I love because it, it reminded me a lot of me, even though I have a very calm demeanor. Like um, what's working underneath all of that is very much like his kind of energy. And so um, I'm like, man, I don't need school, college dropout. I'll just drop out of school. (laughs) 
and I had a good friend of mine uh, who I was supposed to go to school with in Illinois. He he was on the same wavelength as me, and we we did a lot of stuff together. We we were in lockstep a lot of the way, and his upbringing was uh, like a uh, night and day to mine. But we really understood each other, and so um, we talked a lot over the summer, and we and we both decided we would drop out of school and do this business full time. So my mom is driving me back to Alabama to sign the paperwork for my loans for a second year. And I tell her to turn the car around and we're halfway to Alabama. Mm. She's like, are you? And she's like, she pulls over to the side of the road and she's like, are you sure? We're on the highway. And she's like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. I I just, I need to figure out what I want to do. Like for real, for real. I don't want to just be in college signing loan paperwork if I'm not fully invested in what I'm doing. And at the time, it was just a general art major. And I knew that my body wasn't going to give me, get me what I wanted out of track, you know? And so I'm like, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I'm ready uh, to go back. So I'm, I'm not going to go back. And so she said, okay. So she turned the car around and uh, took me back home. And she said, if you're going to stay here, you got to get a job. I was like, all right. So uh, turned around, went back home. And for the next six months, I was looking for work. But of course, high school student. And, and you know, I if I'm being honest, I was very naive. Um, mm-hmm. You can get a job at a high school if you want one. It, it may be behind the counter at McDonald's, but you'll have a job. But I didn't want that. So I'm thinking like, oh, I'll just... I'll just wait and get like some job in an office somewhere. And one month went by and two months went by and ain't nothing happening. And I'm starting to stress out. And I'm, you know, I got a lot of anxiety and stuff because I, I, I know my potential, but the reality ain't there right now. Right. Um, so, you know, six months went by January, 2006, a friend of my mom's had a job opening and I'm thinking like, oh, I'm about to get this job. This thing will be nice. And uh, it was a groundskeeper job in an apartment complex off of Riverdale Road. It was, when I say the hood, mm. I mean the hood, the hood hood. And that's where I started. I was I was literally my, my eight hours, my seven, eight hours um, of every day for the next four years was picking up trash outside. Four years. Yeah. As a groundskeeper. That, and then um, on the side, me and my friend Dexter um, and Sean, we started the business. So we were going do, um, doing family reunions, birthday parties. I was DJing. They would MC, and we would just, you know, do that. And then we, his dad had a, a chicken coop. It was like 100 feet wide or long, 30 feet wide in the back of their yard. It was a huge yard. And so I asked his dad, I gave him a, you know, basically gave him a proposal. I said, you're not using it. If if I renovate it, can we use it? He said, sure. If you want to do that, sure. So we put thousands of dollars into it. I was just working. Me and Dexter were working. We take our money, pay somebody to come in and clean it out, get a bulldozer. We pay bulldozers. We paid electricians to go in there and run power. We paid people to go in there and like all this stuff. And every day after my labor, physically, uh, (laughs) physical labor job, I would go 
to that warehouse and for another three hours we would just go down there and like whatever the contractors or whoever came through uh weren't able to do by the end of the day we would do and that went on for about maybe five months and um and i i was using like my architecture skills and like drawing out plans on Mm -hmm. ground paper of what it would look like and so um we did that and then um yeah, we started hosting parties down there like May or June of 2006. So I was doing the groundskeeper stuff to pay for the uh, the business that we were trying to start. So you were throwing parties on what used to be a chicken coop? Mm-hmm. It was like a um, like a juke joint. That's 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 what everybody told us. They were like, oh, this has juke joint uh, vibes. And so we did that. And then um, this is when I knew this was like the first hint that I needed to uh, like pivot to something else in life. So I go to my old high school, my English teacher there, I was on the newspaper mm-hmm. and she ran the newspaper and, you know, we kept in touch and I'm like, yo, uh, Miss Woods, you should do your poetry slams, your high school poetry slams at the warehouse. And she's like, Oh, I don't know. I'm like, listen, me and Dexter came in there. We gave it a proposal, told her what it would look like. Boom, boom, boom. And we're, we're like 19. <laughs> like we don't know any better, but she, she, she was bought, she bought it. And, um, she came down there. We took her and, uh, Miss Kelly, who was another teacher at the school on a tour. Miss Kelly was just starting her catering business. So we were like, we pitched her on the idea of coming down there and catering the, the events. So we brought them down there and we had a mic system. We had a PA system, everything we designed. Like the whole thing was set up based on how I designed it on that paper. So she came down there, they saw it. Yeah, let's do it. So on a night in, uh, I think it was 2007, by this point, we were doing poetry slams down there. And these were high school students from Westlake and Tri-Cities and Creekside. And they, you know, they would come down, their parents came down there. It was, I like, it was insane that something that was just like spiders and snakes, people were like walking down there to watch their kids do poetry. And I'm DJing and Dexter's got the microphone and he's like introducing people as they come up. And now I'm thinking like, man, maybe I should do some of my poetry that I write in my composition notebook. And like, so all this stuff is happening. Like the writing, I see like my uh, proximity to writing. I see mm-hmm. my proximity to architecture and design. And I'm just like, huh, I wonder what would happen if I had a little bit more structure. But, you know, I'm picking up trash. And I, I, I think a small part of me really liked the idea of finally being able to make my own money and not yeah. have to ask people for money. I got my first car while I was doing that job. And, you know, I'm... I'm I'm around people that um that don't really have anywhere else to go. Like I'm working with people, that's their job. Like they have like kids and you know, they complain about work every day, but they still do it because they have to pay bills. These are grown men. These are mm-hmm. grown men. Like they're in their 30s, some in their 40s, some in their 50s, and they're just doing maintenance work and and they're just looking at me 18, 19, 20. They're like, "Man, this kid is so like like well behaved and like you know man there's gotta be something else for him out there and i just wanted to i just i don't know i just wanted to work and and do my dj and stuff so so you're doing that but you have this glimpse into this world of writing and poetry and you know that you have this talent as well so what was the shift that happened particularly because you found a regiment the day job yeah. is funding these other things and people are coming to this warehouse 
Like, which having not even seen it, it does feel very like very much like a juke joint situation. Like this Mm -hmm. is on somebody's property. I I don't know if you guys had gotten licenses or permits or this is just all sort of happening underground. Underground. Even though you have students and teachers involved, which is hilarious to me. But like, so, you know, you've got a good solid system and program going. What was the switch that flipped that really got you to focus on your writing? And, and, you know, academia again. Um, I mean, well, it's, it, it's interesting, you know, like we were 2021 and me and Dexter just talked our truth all the time. And we were very, very confident and very naive, too, but very, very confident. And I think people just fed off of that. They were just like, man, like I know grown ass men that don't talk like this. Like I, I'm going to back whatever these boys are doing. Like we could sell water to fish if we could. Um, and so people just really supported us. And I think that was a part of it. I'm just like, man, I can do more than this. I can do more. Cause I, I, we met with club owners. We thought about maybe we should open a club. And so we're in Atlanta meeting with club owners and I'm meeting DJs and stuff. I, like I did a, I DJed a party at, uh, this huge mansion and it just, I don't know. It was a reality that wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a DJ, DJ. Like I'm not a career DJ. I was just doing it because it was fun. Like so, if like let's say I leave New York and I get a house, uh, like upstate or whatever, or I get a house out west in California, I would probably DJ, you know, every once in a while when I have my friends over. But I'm not like doing it for work. Just it was a type of uh, energy that I didn't like. You know, and the, and like we did a couple parties where people started fighting and stuff, and it just it wasn't my vibe. You know, I, I don't need I don't need that. <laughs> I ain't trying to die early. Uh, I was I was thinking about that, and uh, I was you know I was talking, I'm talking to a friend the other just the other day, and uh, we were talking about our purpose in life, and I know my purpose is um, to like activate potential like my potential and and show that to people so that they can see that, oh, I can do, I can do whatever it is I'm good at too. And that was something I was feeling a lot around 2008. Uh, my brother went to college, he went to Grambling uh, and we went down there for his homecoming. And um, so it's the whole family. It was really nice. It was so, and I felt so proud as a big brother. It was just, it was a dope moment. Um, and he was in the band, of course. So, you know, we went to the halftime, we went to the football games, saw the halftime show, all this and that. And I'm just thinking like, man, I can, I can, I can do more than this, you know? And so I started asking myself, like, if I go back, what does that look like? Like, if I go back, if I decide to go back to school, what does that look like? What do I want to do? Because I don't want it to just be, I'm going back just to go back because I'm loans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm student loans. <laughs> Not to be toyed with. Right, I'm student loans. So, um. So, you know, I'm, I had I started building again because I had took some time off from doing like my models, the models I used to build at the house. Because, I, I, you know, after a while, I just started they were like, oh, that's what kids do. And I started doing it again and um, like started buying more professional materials for it. And like even the graph paper and like the way I would do measurements, all of that, I tried to like make more professional um, and just, you know, I'm like, maybe I should give this a try. Maybe, maybe I could be an architect. The math part of it, I hate it, mm-hmm. but I'm like, man, I have ideas. Like I have these ideas and they, you know, like for design that really could go somewhere. So let, like, what if I just really give this my full effort? Let's see what happens. 
around that time, I, I also started like writing. So I applied for this school, Southern Polytechnic State University, which now if you look for it, is it, they merged with uh, Kennesaw State University. It had the, at the time uh, when I applied 2008, uh, Southern Poly had the number one architecture program in the Southeast. So that's over Auburn, that's over Georgia Tech. Um, and the professionals, I, I even went and talked, I started connecting with people that were already in the field. And I'm asking them, if I go to school for architecture, what's the program I should go to? And then everyone said, Southern Polytech, because it's more practical, hands-on. And when you come out, you're ready, you know? Um, so like these, these are all the things that, and, and 19, 18 year old Randy wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have mm-hmm. talked to professionals, but through like DJing and doing groundskeeping and all that stuff, I just learned like a different mentality and skill set and just lessons that I had not learned before. And so, you know, I carried that with me. So I applied to school. I did not get in. Mm. <laughs> I was very depressed about it. Uh, Mr. Lindsay, uh, who's now retired, he was the one that administered this test at uh, Southern Poly. So I, I took the test. I failed it. And on the way out, he was like, uh, you know, don't don't be down on yourself. I have a feeling you'll be back. But that was a depressing day because I was I was on a high. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to take this test and go back to school. And right. the reality is like, oh, brother, you, 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 you've been out of class for four years. You ain't studying no math. What you think this is? Go, go sit down somewhere. Like, <laughs> so, life, um, that's when life is just like, I, I, not so fast. <laughs> so I, I called my mom and told her what happened. And, uh, you know, she was very encouraging. Just told me, you know, try and then think about next steps. Don't, don't give up. So I was like, all right, you know, I guess I'll like try to get into um, a community college. The only reason I thought about that was because I had already gone to community college. So I knew there was a place for people like me that needed to get back on my feet. Um, and if I had not had that experience, I probably wouldn't have been as uh, as warm about going to community college. But because I had been and I met really good people, they're lifelong friends. You know, I was open to it. Some people have too much pride to go to community college. I did. Right. Um, and so I, I I applied to Georgia Military. I got in. Um, they have a satellite campus in Fairburn, which was right down the street from my mom's house. Uh, so I, this is nuts. I got a job at FedEx. I was working 3 to 6, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. I would get off. I would go to work at, as a groundskeeper. I would work from eight to five or eight to four. Then I would go to class, night class, and I would do that from five to 1030. And that was my schedule every day. I paid for classes out of pocket um, because I, I didn't even qualify for um, for financial aid at the time because I had been out for so long. And, you know, whatever income thing, whatever the case, I wasn't making a lot of money. I was making $500 every two weeks. So I wasn't making bank. Um, but I was you. I, I literally I pay for everything, and I t- I had to take class more serious than I had before um, because I wanted to see what would happen if I just gave it everything I had. I was just very curious about that. Like, oh, what? Ha-? Like, I know I can pass this class, but what happens if I if I do tutoring? What happens if I do my homework as soon as I get home from class and then review it the day before class? 
Um, you know, what happens if I read more than what the teacher's asking me to read? Like, you know, and I started to really get into that. Uh, I was really, really interested in the, the other side of those things. And so I, I just, I, I, I was a student in a way that I had not been in the past. Um, and I was on like the president's list the whole time I was there. Um, you know, honor roll, all that stuff the whole time I was there. Um, and I was, you know, it just made me a little bit hungrier. Like I'm like, ah, oh. like I told a teacher once, she gave me a hundred on a test, and I told her that she, um, she cheated me out of extra credit, and she did. But she, she was like, I mean, come on, kid, you got a hundred. And I was like, nah, I need my twenty points. Like you cheated me out of my twenty points. Give me my twenty points. Like I work for this. I want my. Sh- <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I did that for another year, a uh, year and a half. Cause I got in in 2009 and in 2010, I applied to Southern Poly again and I got in. Um, and I went to my mom, I, uh, cause she was at home. I think she got home or whatever. And I, the letter was in the mail. I got it. And I went inside, I told, you know, we talked about it and, you know, we celebrated all this. And I told her, I said, when I leave here, cause I was planning to move to campus. Mm-hmm. I said, when I leave here, I am not coming back. Yeah. So first of all, I just have to ask when you were sleeping. The weekends. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the schedule and the homework and everything. And I'm like, okay, when was this guy actually getting mental and physical rest? Yeah. The weekends. <laughs> okay. So you say I'm never coming back. Once I leave this time, that's it. Mm-hmm. So you go with the intention of studying architecture and building that that career, yeah. Um, and what what was your experience like at Southern? It was, you know, all right. So I think something that people miss in that time period was between 2004 and 2010. You got Facebook, you got Twitter, you got Instagram. Like the way that we communicate completely changed. Absolutely. You got, you got online learning, virtual classes. So the way that you're learning has completely changed. YouTube has taken off. Um, Apple has provided us with iPods and like, uh, you know, what is the tablets? And like everything has completely changed. So I'm walking into an environment that looks completely different than what I'm used to. Um, and so, you know, there was a learning curve there and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to catch up. Whereas people have been, like there are kids that have been using Adobe Creative Suite and InDesign and, you know, Final Cut Pro and all this stuff for years. And I had access to none of that coming out like 2003, 2004. I mean, PDF, you know, Acrobat maybe, but all this other stuff was and like wildly new to me. Um, But again, I was very hungry. So I'm like asking questions, hanging out with friends after class and, you know, they're teaching me stuff and giving me links to read this and that and take these tutorials. And I just figured it out. Uh, Architecture was insanely amazing. (laughs) That shit was insane. So all of my professors were from overseas, which... Mm -hmm. Mind blown for me. Like by the by the time I left my mom's house, our neighborhood was completely black. The area, the property value in our neighborhood had dropped immensely because wow. all the white folks had moved out. Uh people were robbing, you know, folks 
at the house and like a <laughs> like it was the it was it was kind of the hood by the time I left. <laughs> um and to to just go from that, like in the, you know, on the south side of Atlanta is is when I was growing up was predominantly black. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the church I went to, black. Everywhere I went to eat, black. Like that's all I knew. The cookouts, all that stuff was black. The only thing that wasn't black was where I moved, the time I moved. That's mm-hmm. it. Uh, but, but even by the time I left, that was that was black. So that's all I knew. So going in, going to school, and now I'm like my professors from Romania have no idea where Romania is. Um, Got to learn that. Uh, one of my friends is from Lithuania. One of my friends is from uh, Togo. Like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Like, these are people I'm in class with. Like, I was the only person in in my uh, studio who's from it, like South Atlanta. That's just like that's insane to me. <laughs> like, so these are like I'm learning culture. I'm learning new cultures. I learned that you don't have to overcook your steak. Uh, that was that was insane to me. I'm learning. Uh, I'm I'm learning like how to dress. You know, I, I was just used to baggy clothes and all that stuff. And you know, I'm I'm meeting women who are from different parts of the world, and they are, they got different tastes and you know men and how they move and stuff. So I'm I'm like trying to adjust on that. It was it was wild, um, and a, a lot of that really influenced my writing as much as it did my design work. I was I was writing crazy amounts of pages while I was in architecture. Um, when I was at Georgia Military, I met a guy who went to the Iowa workshop, which is the number one MFA program in the country, mm-hmm. or it's like the most prestigious. Um, so he was teaching creative writing at Georgia Military. I took his class because I needed an extra couple credits. And I got in there and, and like it, it, it took over. So mm-hmm. I was I was now writing as much as I was doing design work. Um, and I started a book a couple months before I moved out of my mom's house um, and that I continued while I was in architecture school. I did architecture school for one year. It's a five-year program, a five-year professional program. I did it for one year. And midway through, I decided I was leaving architecture. for mm-hmm. And called my mom. She was upset. Whole family was upset. I stopped talking to them for a couple months. Um, it was a mess, but it was a clear, it was, that decision was more clear to me than uh, agreeing or, or deciding to drop out the first time. And did you have a plan? It's one thing to say, okay, this is no longer serving me. I'm out. And it's another thing to have a clear vision of how you're going to pivot and monetize what clearly is a talent and also a passion. So I'll never forget the conversation I had with my mom. I was outside uh, my apartment building in Marietta and I called her and I said, I'm, I'm you know, I'm switching majors. Um, and, you know, what's, what's interesting was the day I decided to do that, I didn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I left. I skipped studio. I told the professor I would not be there, but I skipped studio. And when I say skip, it was imp- it's important that you understand the culture of that place. Um, everyone was connected at the hip to everyone. So when you, if you and I were in studio together, I knew your food, I knew your eating schedule, I knew your sleeping schedule. If you weren't somewhere by six o'clock, 
something was wrong. Mm-hmm. I knew that I would check in on you. Like we were, we were living, we, we would sleep there at studio. Uh, we ate together. We, we broke bread together. People would go over each other's houses for holidays. Like we, it was a big family. So for me not to miss studio, it's a four hour class for me to miss that and not tell anybody every, everyone was concerned. So I turned my phone off and I drove home to see my mom. Uh, because I don't know, my mom calms me, calms me in a certain way, mm-hmm. but I didn't need her to know. I didn't need her to know why I was there. I told her they canceled class. And so I went home, I took her out to eat. We went to go see a movie. It was just like a, you know, like a day thing. Um, and meanwhile, my phone is blowing up because people are concerned. I'm not at home. I'm not at my apartment. People are like scared. So, um, I just needed, I needed the peace of mind before I told people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I spent the day with my mom. It was great. And then I drove back. I, t- I called uh, one of my friends, William. I told him I was coming back to campus. And we were all hanging out on the parking deck uh, doing a barbecue. And I just told everybody there that I'm not coming back for my second year. And people were like destroyed. Because I was really good. I was, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not tooting my horn. I was good. I was really good. Um, and it was clear to me what my path in architecture would look like had I stayed. The reason why I left was because I can, I couldn't, I didn't see myself expressing myself as effectively with design as I could with words. I like I, with words, it was easy. Um, still is. And so I, for me, that was an easy decision. So, uh, that was, and I think it was somewhere, somewhere. I called my mom to tell her that I'm not coming back or I'm not uh, staying in architecture. And I said, I'm leaving architecture to do create uh, to do writing. I'm going to join the newspaper here at the university. When I graduate, I'm going into an MFA program and I'm going to be an editor in New York. That's what I told her. It was as clear to me as the screen we looking at. Mm-hmm. That's how clear it was. I, I knew it. And I knew, I didn't just knew it. I knew what steps I had to take on each level to get what I needed. So I knew what it looked like. Uh, I wasn't just saying, oh, I want to be a millionaire. Well, that's nice. <laughs> do you know what it takes to be a millionaire? Do you know what you have to do with your money to be a millionaire? Uh, so I, I knew it was very clear to me. Um, and my, mom's, my mom told me straight up, she was like, I think you're being a quitter. So... I was like, all right, stop talking to her. Uh, my godfather called me and told me that I'm not doing what God wanted me to do. Stop talking to him. Um, anybody else? I was taking on all takers. I was so I was so laser focused on this mission that if you weren't down with it, I wasn't fucking with you. So that's I didn't talk to family for a few months. Uh, I switched majors. I joined the newspaper and climbed that ladder quickly, quicker than somebody's supposed to. Uh, became editor in chief, changed the whole thing around, helped people at the uh, newspaper get jobs, recruited like crazy, got it a lot of attention. We won awards and kind of flipped that into a commencement speaker, first commencement speaker ever at the university. Wow. So it's interesting that your godfather said, you know, you're not doing what God wants you to do. When you stepped into your purpose, how the doors really flew open for you and and things happen in succession. Seems like one thing built on another. And so this is the conversation we have often on this show that 
talent and purpose are not one and the same. You can be talented at something and absolutely be successful in it. It doesn't mean that that's what your purpose to do. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. sounds like your story is a, a prime example of that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, writing is something you have to, anybody who writes knows it's like, you can have, you can be talented as a writer and not be a good writer. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you really got to work at it. And it was just something I was, I knew I was like, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. I don't need my legs. Like, you know, you need your legs to run track. I don't need my legs for this. Like I can, I can write for the rest of my life. As long as, uh, as long as my, my arms don't slow down and my, my mind don't around, I can do this for the rest of my life. And that's, it was just, it was clear. Uh, the other thing that came was that I was a, I was a natural leader and that's mm-hmm. something I used to run away from a lot because I, I, I used to get very, I don't know, like embarrassed about the idea of like me being a, leading a group of people. But the more I wanted for people around me, the more I saw the saw that opportunity. And that's what that newspaper taught me. Because when I got there, when, when I got there, the newspaper staff was two people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the budget was slim to none. When I took over, we were in the red. So I held a meeting. Standing room only in the office. And I said, listen, I can get us out of this. I know how to get us out of this. This is what it's going to look like. In the meantime, nobody is getting paid, not even me. If you don't like that, there's the door. You can leave right now. Nobody left. I said, okay, this is what I need to do. This is the timeline. And I'll update you every step of the way. A month and a half later, fixed the budget. Everybody was getting paid. The rest is history. One of one of our best designers from that newspaper is working for CNN. She's actually the person who's leading the CNN Plus campaign right now. Like the proof is in the pudding. I, I did not play around while I was there. I was I was doing work. So why? What gave you the confidence to know that you could fix that? Uh, it's learning, and and I think that goes back to when I was um when I was a groundskeeper, and then later on. When I um, went back to school, it's just learning. Um, I saw how if you put effort into learning, how easier things get. Where if you're not putting effort in, yes, yeah, it's, it's just going to be hard. Um, mm-hmm. But the easy, like the more effort I put into learning new things, the easier those things became. And that doesn't mean that I was just like, oh, this is easy. But no, it just means that things were more fluid. Um, and so I was just able, I was just, you know, able to do those things. And relationships matter a lot. Um, and that's the other thing I learned too. You got to build relationships. And so I, I was working at university campus, anybody that was working on that campus, whether they were a grad, uh, worker or they were a full-time tenured professor, all of them will tell you that dude had relationships and I just trusted people. And at the same time, I stuck to my guns. I was genuine. I told people what I wanted when I wanted it. And, you know, this is what this can do for you. This isn't just about me. I want to let me help you. And that's, you know, that's how that worked. Even when I, I, I didn't get selected to do the commencement speech. Like I, I was like that university was a predominantly white university in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that they had do commencement speeches came from engineering firms, ele- electrical companies. These are like white guys, boring ass white guys. They would talk. People would text on their phones. One of my friends was on, I, I, I still remember it. She was on the front row at commencement one year texting. 
I think she might have actually picked up the phone. That's how boring those speeches were. So, you know, they didn't, they didn't, I, I told them I'm doing the commencement speech. Mm. And that got all the way to the president. It took a year uh, for me to get a face-to-face with the president. But I sat down with the president and, and I'm a student. I'm not a grad student. I'm not no PhD student. I was an undergrad. And I sat in her office and she said, why should it be you? And I said, because. People need to hear this story and people don't relate to these guys y'all bringing in. They're boring. Like we spend all this money. And at the end, this is what you're giving me as a thank you. This I'm going to stay home. I was like, I was like, honestly, if you don't pick me, I'm not going. And that probably ain't nothing for you, but it's something for me. I ain't going to that. Mm -hmm. She was like, all right, you can do it. It was that simple. It was a five minute conversation. Wow. So help me understand how you came to choosing being an editor. Like, how was that your vision versus just I'm going to write? Yeah, I'm, I mean, it's, it's twofold in the sense, like, it's, it, it goes back to that architecture um, conversation where you, you think you know what something is because of the name and, like, the glitz and glamour. When you see architecture on TV, when you see an architect on TV, it looks like they have a lot of money and they don't mm-hmm. when you think architect, you think about Frank Gehry and people like that. And so you, you know, you always see the glitz and glamour of it, the Michael Jordan of it. You never see the other side of it. Uh, so when I thought about editing, I was an editor at the newspaper. So I just thought, well, I could be an editor in New York too. Um, and you know, a part of it was like, if I learn how to edit, then I become a better writer. Mm-hmm. And the other part of it was I can organize, I can build infrastructure, I understand how these things work. Because being an editor isn't always just about the writing, depending on where you are. It's about the the staff and how things function around the office, things like that. And so I just thought, you know, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll be an editor. I didn't know (laughs) the other part of it like I know now. Mm -hmm. So, So, but you, you execute on your vision. Yeah. You get the MFA in creative writing from the new school. You are an editor, right? You've built this career. Tell me what it looks like, what your professional life looks like today. Uh, so now I'm, in addition to everything you just mentioned, I'm also the writing programs manager at the Center for Fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I over I oversee their Emerging Writer Fellowship, which is basically me, you know, providing them with resources to give them a leg up and mentoring them. Um, I also oversee their first novel prize, which is their big prize. Um, and it's what they highlight for their gala, their big fundraising event at the end of the year. Um, I oversee all of the writing workshops um, that happen there. Um, so authors will come in and want to teach and I help them uh, set up classes. And then uh, I oversee the writer studio, which is this monthly subscription based membership where people get, you know, sign up for a space to write. And it's some crazy names in there. I was like, what this person in here writing. Okay. That's cool. I see. I saw the, uh, their book get turned into an HBO special. Yeah. So that's that's my day job. I mean, before that, it, it was easy getting to that um, in New York. Like I, I was doing a lot of admin work. I was doing executive uh, assistant work, uh, unfulfilling work, uh, and unforgiven as well. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, all those things taught me something. I don't. I don't think nineteen year old Randy could do those types of jobs. But 
Randy at 28, 30, he can do those jobs because I learned a lot. So I, I understand perspective. I understand the organization, the infrastructure more than I did before. Um, and, you know, all those all the jobs that I've had have put me in the position where I am now. So, like, if I have a job that's bad, yeah, it sucks. But nothing nothing sucks more than picking up condom wrappers and bullet cases off the, off the ground in the morning after somebody you know got shot and killed, mm. you know. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's perspective. <laughs> Absolutely. And what types of fictional stories inspire you the most now? Mm. The ones that inspire me the most now are ones that reflect the world we live in today, but really a deep dive and investigation into how we can make that better. Mm-hmm. So any situation, really. Um like, I think one of the books I always talk about is Exit West by Mosin Hamid, which is insanely good. Um, and it's very relevant to what's happening now in, in uh, Ukraine and everybody having to migrate out of there um, and, like, misplace and having to figure out what's next, what's home now. Um, and I also, whew, Jamaica Kincaid wrote this book called See Now Then that I like I recommend to everybody mm-hmm. that book is insanely good. And, you know, she's a master of the craft and, you know, the way that she, the way that uh, she wrote that book just really tells me a lot about how women see the world and how men just will continue to have blind spots that, <laughs> and, and continue to miss marks with writing and in life in general that, you know, like we, like that women just can't miss. Um, unfortunately. So, yeah. And despite the work and all the work that you're doing to further and advance other people's careers, are there stories in you that will be told in the future? Yeah, I think, I think, I hope so. I'm, I'm working on a memoir right now about my first four years in New York and why I left Atlanta because it wasn't all MFA. And I'm working on a novel that I started when I moved here for grad school. And, you know, I'm just taking my time. I, I think uh, the, the one thing I did when I, when I left Atlanta was just took a deep breath and exhaled. It was so much. Those last like three years was just being at the forefront of everything and leading a lot of people is exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um it really is exhausting. So to to be able to step back and be a follower again was really nice because, you know, there's a lot of value in being a follower and supporting people whose uh, vision and work you believe in. So that's that's been like a lot of my my job these days. Whether no matter what my title is, um, it's just you know being observing and being aware of people that need support and just figuring out how I can help them you know, what's my capacity and how I can help. Mm-hmm. And shifting gears a bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Uh, it was a, it was a commencement speech for sure. Mm-hmm. It, like people, people, people won't call that an ordinary day, but it is because while I was giving that commencement speech, somebody was getting evicted. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when I was the one doing the evict and I was a groundskeeper and I would have to help carry couches out. Uh, on an, on on that ordinary day, I'm on stage giving a commencement speech. Somebody's losing their job, or somebody's breaking up and moving out of the house, and 
Now a kid has to split houses because their parents are divorced. And so, yeah, for me, that was that was something extraordinary, for sure. So you mentioned these two authors and these works I'm most certainly going to look up after this, this interview. Uh, but tell us someone else, particularly a young author that you feel has next. They're up next. Mm. Oh, my God, that's pressure. I know it is, but mm. I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a few. There's a few uh, for sure. Like my friend Sincere, who hasn't published a book yet. I really, I really like I, I really like her work. She's nonfiction. She writes essays. And, you know, her and I just have conversations all the time. And, you know, sincere somebody doesn't hold punches and will let me know like when I'm when I've overstepped or um just the blind spots that black men especially have when it comes to like their proximity to black women. Mm-hmm. Um and that right that always shows up in her work. Um and um you know, my boy Yadon Israel was off being a superstar editor. He uh eventually like yeah, I'm I'm saying it now because it's probably gonna happen. Eventually he's gonna write he's gonna put a book together for himself. And when that happens, folks in trouble. Mm-hmm. He's coming. That he's coming. That's my boy. Um, and he's somebody that's looked out for me from the minute I from the minute I, I moved here. Um, and then I'm missing someone for sure. Uh, there's this author that wrote this book, A Burning, Mega Majumdar. Mm-hmm. And um, I there was just something dark, very, very dark, but honest about that that novel. And you can tell, like, I, when I read some people, and this is just the editor in me, when I read some people, I'm like, uh-oh, there's, there's more there. Like, that person has more left in that in the chamber. Uh, you know, you read some books and you're like, yeah, they emptied the clip on this. This is mm-hmm. all they got. But Mega got Mega got some more. <laughs> She's got more. So I'm really looking forward to see um, what she produces next. And shout out to you, Don, who was a part of the December 26th family, mm-hmm. uh, former guest. And it's been exciting to just watch his rise since he's been on the show uh, in the editing world. And, and you're right. I, I can't wait to see what he creates himself. Yeah, that's, Absolutely. That's my that's my boy. So what are you most excited about in the next phase of your career? Um, I mean, I really, I'm really excited about the Center for Fiction. I think um, uh, there's been a lot of changes there over the past few years, especially during uh, during the pandemic. And so, you know, we're really trying to figure out, you know, what's next. And, I, and I, I'm excited to be a part of that uh, for sure. Um, like just the Center for Fiction, the new location makes it new in a sense because it's been around for 200 years, but um, it's new in that it's been it's been in Brooklyn for uh, since 2019, and we really haven't had a full year open to the public because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it'll be interesting to see what the rest of 22 looks like and and on from there, but. I'm really excited to be a part of that and like really enhancing the culture of the place and really making it more accessible for people that look like me and just other folks in the neighborhood. Um, that, that's, that's like what I'm really, really excited about. And, uh, you know, also the writing, but the writing is always going to be there. That's, um, 
that's something that I'm I'm learning more and more is, is not to force it. Like my the writing's gonna be there. Mm-hmm. But these other opportunities to build relationships and help people, you know, those things are for me right now are more urgent. And so I'm I'm bringing that energy, like whether it's like growing the newspaper or doing the warehouse, like all of that energy is now coming to the Center for Fiction. So, yeah, that's that's what it is right now. And that's a great place uh, to end on. I am incredibly excited as well thinking about the community that you now reside in and you you basically snatched the words out of my mouth understanding how you <laughs> vision and attack ideas and the things that you you believe that you're meant to be doing and how they manifest i'm excited to see how that plays out in this next chapter of your career and in your life thank you thank you so tell the people where they can find you online Oh my goodness. Where can you find me? Uh, you can find me online. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. It's underscore R Winston's world. And I don't always talk about books and writing. I, I'm a person, you know, I'm a person first and I like to talk about food and a- Abbott Elementary and just jokes and memes, you know. <laughs> we got to have balance. We have to have levity as well. Yeah, people people think if if just because you're an editor and a writer, that's all you talk about. I'm like, nah, I'm a person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're gonna talk about this, uh, this cherry pie. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. So to our listeners, you know the drill. If you've enjoyed this interview, tell somebody else about it. Like, comment, subscribe to the podcast. Go check out the work that Randy's doing online and the jokes he's getting off on social media <laughs> as well. <laughs> Once you do all of that. Remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.